0: Hello and welcome to Navara FM brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's most sensational and distinctive of radio stations, a gem of light in the increasing winter gloom. I am James Butler, partisan, if anything, of the winter gloom (laughs) Uh, and as those wintry nights draw in, you might, if you're feeling flush or if you're too hungover from a Christmas party to stagger to the kitchen, open an app on your phone and have food delivered to your house by a gig economy worker. The companies that run those apps have been the attention of a lot of commentary exemplars of the new platform capitalism. And between the two largest, Deliveroo and Uber Eats, they number about 100,000 users a day. Uh, There is huge amounts of cash running through them, though they generally tend to operate at a loss. And where there is capital, there is also resistance. Uh, Over the past couple of years, we've seen a sudden and inspiring rise in worker organisation on those platforms, including strikes, transnational organisation, but also court challenges over the nature of the work and employment law. Joining me in the studio today is Callum Kant, author of a new book, *Rising for Delivery, resistance in the new economy, Uh, a militant workers' account of that organising from the inside, an exploration of just what this new kind of organising might mean for the way we think on the left about capital, labour and the contours of the contemporary class struggle. Callum, welcome
1: to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh,
0: Just before we jump into the discussion, listeners, Will, I'm sure have seen news of the Turkish invasion of northern Syria uh, and the attacks on the democratic experiment in Rojava, It's worth heading over, if you're listening to this, to the Navarra Media website, where you can find some discussions of that assault and dispatches from Rojava, as well as an interview I conducted with Debbie Bookchin, whose father, Murray Bookchin, inspired some of the politics behind the Rojava experiment. uh, And I conducted that a few weeks ago at The World Transformed. Uh, There's also a demonstration against the Turkish invasion this Sunday in London, starting outside the BBC. Uh, I urge everyone listening to get to that if you can, and just make some noise about Turkey's clear and expressed intent to carry out ethnic cleansing in Rojava. Uh, but let's get back to the discussion. Um, I think probably the easiest place for us to start is just just for you to tell us a bit about the period that the book
1: narrates and is focused around, uh, and and how you came to be involved. So, the book starts in kind of the middle of 2016. I had just finished studying at the University of Sussex, I was working at the Students' Union. It was an incredibly boring job, the kind that moves you to tears, um, and inevitably as a result of this I kind of had an individualised alienated response, ended up spending hours on, on Facebook and Twitter. Hmm. And then as it got through to kind of late summer, I was just sitting there in the office, the sun's shining outside, I'm bored inside, that kind of like childhood trapped behind a window when you can see that it's nice outside but it's not break time. Um, And I very much had that kind of feeling when suddenly into my feed, exploded a a series of videos that I didn't initially understand. So what they were, or appeared to be, were huge motorcycle convoys or moped convoys going through the streets of London. Um, And gradually what I worked out um, was that these were actually strike convoys. These were like flying pickets, right? And the videos were coming from workers, um, mostly delivery workers, who had basically gone on strike to protest a change in their payment structure, where instead of being paid a set number, um, a set wage per hour and then an amount per drop. They were just going to be paid per drop. So you could see hundreds of moped riders snaking through the city and kind of filming on their mobile phones, everyone beeping on their horns. There was an incredible energy to it. Um, I was fascinated. And then I think a day later or something, on the third day of the strike, another video came out which showed these Deliveroo riders when they actually arrived at their destination outside of Deliveroo's HQ. They were in a huge crowd, again, a couple of hundred strong with kind of handwritten signs about their demands, um, supported by trade unionists. When out of the main building comes a guy uh, called Dan Warren, who was the head of operations in the UK and Ireland. He marches over with this very public school confidence um, and starts addressing this group of workers, basically telling them, you just haven't understood what's going on. You you just fundamentally, you don't get it. You're being really, you know, this isn't a sensible response. You know, we can have one-on-one conversations with you. We can explain this isn't actually a pay cut. It's just a change in the pay structure. And he's attempting to do this kind of very patronising thing, which suddenly these 200 workers start shouting at him, and you can very visibly see that he has no idea what's going on, right? These people, who's only previously seen as dots on a map across the city, are suddenly voicing kind of a capacity to resist him, and he's completely at a loss. So he gets shouted at, he gets told their demands, he attempts to patronise them again, they keep on shouting at him and eventually he kind of runs away, humiliated, back into the building. And that for me was fascinating because that, that video was kind of proof that there was some agency here, some subject here, which no one really had a handle on. Like no one really knew who these workers were. I, I lived um, obviously in Brighton at the time and I, I'd seen these workers around the city, but certainly I'd never known that there was that kind of militancy uh, kind of within the sector. And this was 2016 August, very much an early example of what we'd later like to come to see more and more of. So immediately, is uh, actually in the book because I um, went and started to write an article, Uh, the strike spread from Deliveroo to Uber Eats, and I started to write an article um, about how this strike had developed and trying to understand some of this early stuff to answer my own questions. I talked to Petros Elia, who is a trade unionist with the United Voices of the World, um, a kind of a militant grassroots union in London, and he basically gave me a fantastic quote, which I mean, I use it in the preface, or actually I think in the introduction to kind of underlie the logic for the book but he, he said basically this isn't organising as we know it this is something else entirely they don't follow the rules they do what they want and it works right now for me that's a fascinating well what is that something else right and so the book is an attempt to answer what that something else is because what I immediately did I'd just been searching for information on these companies and then was immediately served with a barrage of adverts to come mm-hmm. and work for Deliveroo and uh, having some you know some knowledge of, of the workers inquiry method through you know operaismo, Italian form of Marxism and others I thought well suddenly this seems like quite a good opportunity to understand kind of the hidden abode of these platforms, um, how they actually do the work and how this resistance could emerge. So I ended up signing up for a job. Um, I worked at Deliveroo in Brighton for about eight months part-time alongside uh, still working at the Students' Union. And what I found was really a a well-organized workforce, a a self-organized workforce. And this self-organization under the conditions of production that they were in would repeatedly end up Um, engaged in very militant struggle against the platform. Um, And that for me was kind of a fascinating insight that then kind of set off a chain of further thinking um, about how we can consider at these kind of technological development points that the the laboratories of of class struggle, uh, how are things being recomposed? How is the working class recomposing itself? And how is the political struggle uh, against this mode of production being moved forward?
0: Let me just pick up something you're saying there, because you you mentioned in that video that that, that it's not just uh, workers, but trade unionists Mm -hmm. as well. Tell me just a bit about the trade unions, because you've mentioned UVW, uh, who have been mentioned many times on this show the last few years, These this kind of grassroots union. Um, they're, they're distinct from, you know, the, the, the trade unions that perhaps more people might be aware of. Tell me, tell me about that difference and tell me why it's, you know, why it's those
1: people who were uh, there. Mm-hmm. So... I really write about two trade unions in the book. Uh, The first is the Independent Workers of Great Britain, IWGB. The second actually uh, is an interesting union with a very interesting history, the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. Listeners might be familiar with the IWW in kind of its historical iterations as a 20th century um, American revolutionary syndicalist union. Um, And it was those two that I really ended up engaging with, because they were the only people attempting to respond to and organise with this workforce. Now, I think there's a lot of interesting reasons why, if you're the IWGB or the IWW, you go into to the sector, whereas, you know, Unite or the GMB might not be so interested. One of those is clearly it's a hot shop right now. A hot shop means it's a workplace where struggle is already ongoing. So you're engaging with it, and you're not actually having to cause organisation struggle to emerge, but you're attempting to engage with and channel that. Now that's something that you know um, often many unions are kind of wary of because it can it can get out of hand very quickly. Trade unions aren't always central to the process. The workers already organised enough to be in struggle, so you know you're not necessarily a, a necessary conduit. Um, and also, there's the self employed status, where the goal for so many unions today with their organizing efforts is that we want to have what we call a recognition agreement, a collective bargaining agreement with an employer. How do you get there? Well, there is a statutory mechanism for getting there, um, whereby basically you just have a majority in the bargaining unit, um, you win an election, and then you get kind of a recognition agreement. And the goal is to, for so many of these big trade unions, just to achieve one of those, mm. right? And doing that in a new sector, in what we call like a greenfield sector, entails huge risks. And for these workers, that wasn't even theoretically a possibility that statutory route wasn't even open to them because they're technically defined as Mm self-employed, right? mm -hmm. So that's a huge disincentive if you're a large trade union. I mean, not only is this a militant and quite messy struggle already going on that you don't really understand but added to that, how how are you even going to reach a point of resolution, right? You're not going to get 50% 50% plus one membership in a, in a bargaining unit, and that's not going to happen. So there's no real horizon for this unless you take the route that, you know, struggle is kind of valid in and of itself and that maybe we have to have a political resolution. I think we'll come back to the question of the relationship
0: between this kind of struggle and the institutions because it's an, inter- it's an interesting and important one. Um, I, I just want to think a bit, because you mentioned, so you were doing this work part time, mm-hmm. um, how how typical of that? How typical is that of of that workforce? Uh, because I know that there are, and I think people know that there are a lot of sort of migrant workers involved in these kind of workforces. That there's, you know, there are people in in relatively, uh, you know, at will employment, and that's certainly how it's solved, right? It's flexible, it's easy, the yep. gig economy. You can uh, you can work whenever you want. Um, so tell me about that, and t- tell me how many people are working that kind of that kind of very part-time shift, and perhaps tell me a little bit about actually the, because it's a very physical job, right? So tell me a bit about the average shift
1: uh, at delivery. Okay, so I'll start with an average shift. Um, when you logged into the app, I mean, certainly the, the app is changing all the time. that's the other thing to say that I was working 2016, 2017 and it's an important part of the book actually this this labour process is constantly open for redesign without consultation. So the way that the app actually functions is always changing underneath your feet, some in ways that you can actually see, some in ways that you can't see but intimately structure your work. But the work experience as I kind of uh, lived it was you would log in, you'd roll to the zone centre right now. Now the zone centre is fascinating because this is basically, you have these, in any system where you need lots of surplus labour to respond to demand, you need kind of like a holding pen for that labour, right? So if you're a docker um, in the early 20th century in the UK, uh, you'll be on the stones, right? This is like waiting on the cobblestones. If, you know, the Minneapolis Teamsters that organise logistics workers, truck drivers, they used to wait in a thing called the dog house. Anywhere where you have that kind of labour system, there is a holding pen. Now these holding pens are fascinating, and what you do with delivery is you basically had to wait, for me, there was a place called Jubilee Square, which in the centre of Brighton, surrounded by restaurants and when you didn't have a job you'd wait there so that when orders started picking up you're in the right place to quickly go to the restaurant and to quickly start doing deliveries. Now that actually became an accumulation point for a lot of political experience, a lot of organising because people were waiting there. I mean we were paid purely on a piece rate. We paid £4 per delivery, nothing else. So when you are waiting there you're on £0 an hour. Right, it's a moment of incredible frustration. Subjectively, I don't think I was quite prepared when I started the job for, for what it felt like to be exploited in that way. Like I'd done crap jobs beforehand, I'd you know worked in kitchens or whatever. But the feeling of actually earning zero pounds an hour and knowing you were completely at the whim of a platform that you may just make four pounds that hour or you may make nothing at all, is a really profound experience of kind of antagonism. And you, you're grouping all the workers, feeling that very upsetting and profoundly unsettling feeling in one place, so they can all talk to one another, right? We can go into that a bit later, mm-hmm. but but that accumulation point was where you'd start a shift, then you'd go to kind of a kitchen. You'd get a ding on the app, it would tell you to go to a kitchen. It wouldn't give you any more information than that. You'd go to, you know, say, Yo Sushi or something. You'd go pick up the delivery, uh, then you'd swipe to confirm you had everything in the order. Often, uh, the bags are stapled shut because they don't want you nicking chips, so, that, you know, functionally, you can't tell whether you've got everything. So, you swipe to say you've got all that, then it'll say, all right, now you need to go deliver to X address. Right. In Brighton, I was working um, on a bike. Now, this usually means up a massive hill somewhere, um, which I moan about hills a lot in the mm-hmm. book, but I feel well justified. <laughs> <laughs> um, you basically you then cycle, you deliver it to a customer, and then immediately you turn around and you roll back down. And you could tell how busy a shift is by when you swipe delivered, do you immediately get another order or do you have to roll back to the zone center? Now. That's the experience of a cyclist. Um, For me, I would work maybe three, four hours most of the time because physically it was very hard to work longer, particularly during the winter when order volumes are higher. You're going to get too cold, right? Like it's really hard. If you even just like calorific Like Mm -hmm. You you need to eat enough to work for that period of time, which is really hard if you're slotting something in as a second shift. If You want to be out the door at five o'clock, right? You want to really be changed over really quickly. But then it's very hard. You don't get to eat. So the last thing you ate was lunchtime. And then you're now eight hours later, four hours into like running around the city. Uh, That's quite difficult. Now, for me, that was kind of the process. But then for moped riders, um, the experience is much less likely to be three or four hours instead be eight, ten, more than that. Moped riders make up quite a small part of the workforce, they're probably about 20% compared to about 80% cyclists in pure numbers, but they do a huge proportion of the deliveries. So they will do a vast majority of the actual work that makes the platform run. Now, these moped riders, they've obviously they've bought a moped. They've usually got it on a higher purchase scheme, so they're paying it off month by month, which means they have a long-term commitment to the platform. They often have families to support. They're much more likely to be migrant workers mm-hmm. um, who are kind of excluded from the, the mainstream of the labour force by language or immigration status or something similar. Um, and these workers really are committed. They're doing 40, 60, 80-hour weeks, right, in order to, to get enough to live on. And it's their primary source of income. So if wages drop, they don't have a choice of just, oh, I'm just going to pick up some more shifts at my other job. Or they don't have any of this notion of flexibility. They keep working and working and working and working until they've got the amount of money they need to pay rent. So those two parts of the workforce are very distinct. You have a younger, often student dominated, often British um, workforce. Often overeducated, you know, there's a lot of kind of overqualification amongst the, the cyclist workforce. And then amongst mopeds, you have very different demographics. But I think the fascinating thing for me is that these two demographics don't just have kind of an antagonistic relation that you might understand, you know, they don't have a lot in common culturally or whatever but they have a profound solidarity when it actually comes to taking action. I think every time you've seen delivery strikes kick off um, or Uber Eats strikes, any of these examples, it's the solidarity between those different fractions of the workforce that is so inspiring and that really can develop very, very quickly. Mm.
0: Tell me a bit about the political framework you went into this work with, because, you know, at the, the, the beginning, of the, I mean, the book's title itself is, I assume, a nod to the uh, the 1973 Hugh Bennion book, yeah. about Working for Ford, which is itself part of a kind of longer... Tradition, uh, you know, a, quite a, a sometimes covert tradition within uh, left-wing thinking of sort of workers' inquiry and kind of work on the ground at the point of production. Um, did did you find that that your sense of, of, of and we've talked about this on the show before, and I'm sure listeners can go back into the archive and find it. But just give me a sense of, of what you were looking for when you went in. Um, and 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 how that framework you know structured what you were doing
1: yeah so i mean th- there's two real dominant ideas of the book one is a methodology one's a theory right the methodology is workers' inquiry we have we've tried to before about it on Navarra, but basically the idea is you want to understand work from the worker's point of view, not with the goal of like understanding it in some like, absurd, um, objectivist way. You want to understand it in order to make a political intervention, right? You understand the, the balance of class forces in that particular context. So it's kind of a militant investigative model. Then alongside that, um, there's this wonderful idea of, of class composition theory, which is actually the structure of the book, pretty much. So you start out with technical composition. Now, this is how a worker is actually structured into a workforce, right? How do you turn lots of people you've employed into a productive um, unit that is, you know, chucking out commodities that make you value? Then there's kind of a social composition. So this is not only how you organize in the workplace, but also how you organized elsewhere. And this is a, a slightly more innovative. I mean, it's only a couple of years old in, in terms of the British context, talking about social composition. But I think for me, this is where issues like education, um, issues like housing, issues like migration really come into the mix. And you're trying to think, how is this workforce structured by their relationships outside the workplace? So what are they bringing with them to the workplace and how are they reproducing themselves outside of it? And that's where you take into account some of the issues of social reproduction, which historically perhaps have been ignored by the framework. Then finally, you have this idea of political composition. So if you've got the way that workers are organized into a workforce as technical, uh, the way that workers are organized into a society of work, as the social, then the political is really how are workers responding to these circumstances in order to overturn those conditions? So, how are they being contested? What forms of organisation are emerging? How is that organisation being turned into struggle through the application of tactics? Those questions are, are really fundamental. Um, so what I'm trying to do is really present that slightly theoretical perspective through a really easy, accessible um, book. So, I mean, the, the ideal audience for this stuff is, it, I had a little phrase that I repeated to myself, it's, it's angry workers and shitty jobs, right? That, you know, that's who it's been written. i so apologise
0: for that word before Ofcom comes down on us like a ton of bricks. Of course, uh, as, as anyone who's worked in a minimum wage job knows that profanity is almost never on the lips. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. um, but yes, for anyone who's offended by that well uh, sorry um, but yeah no, let, let's develop that then like that sense of okay thinking about actually how the, the, the class is composed and obviously we've talked about this a bit in the past but uh, you know what's important to me here is that in this tradition that you're drawing from there is you know, a suspicion or a critique of, of forms of uh, forms of analysis which are too kind of capital centric right that, mm-hmm. that see um, the, the engine and the motive force of our society as being driven effectively by changes within capitalist production which are kind of spontaneous right they develop from capitalism's own logic and don't really have anything to do with what people on the ground actually do mm-hmm. um it, it, the premise of, of, of this entire tradition is to reject that and to say that actually you know, th- there's a far more complex uh, relationship at work. Uh, sometimes it, it's phrased almost as if uh, that all of the changes have been capital are driven by a sort of workers' innovation, workers' organisation. Uh, I, I think that runs into some kind of interesting questions when you think about the kind of workplace that you were talking about because as you've just said, Technology is kind of crucial here, yeah, and the yeah. way in which these things are organised um, are really very much kind of out of the the kind of scope of control. It's not like an assembly line, right? Mm-hmm. So, in an assembly line, you can, you, as a worker, you probably understand better how the thing in front of you works uh, than your boss does. Yeah, uh, you know, particularly if your boss hasn't come up, uh, you know, for, from from the same ranks that you, you've been working, but has kind of parachuted in or whatever. Um, and obviously, in in you know, it, you know, in this line of work,ing and in, in a lot of kind of the platform capitalist or or kind of gig economy work, uh, that isn't the case because it's run by uh, you know what is effectively a black box, mm-hmm. right? You can see the orders go in, you can see that you get you know told to go to a kitchen and cycle off to this place or that place, and you put the back breaking work in. But that question in between is just utterly
1: inaccessible to you. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things here. The first is, you know, this question of whether um, it's the production of value, whether it's capital that really drives recomposition or whether it's workers. I mean, Marx bequeathed us this problem because in capital, he has this discussion of uh, the linkages between kind of technological repression, um, the way in which you might develop a factory system in order to smash the opposition of workers within it. That you know, labour power is always indeterminate, right? It's bought. Your time is bought kind of in advance and the actual use of it where well, you need a boss. Needs a system to turn it into something useful, to turn it into productive labor. Marx gives us this kind of technological repression driver, like that drives technology, but then he also says relative surplus value production, that is, you know, gaining an, a competitive advantage over other capitals, is another driver, and then completely fails to clarify the relationship between the two. And this is kind of where we get into um, the discussions that, that you were kind of hinting at earlier. I think that for me, I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to say it's one way or the other, but <laughs> I, I try and work out an intermediation between mm-hmm. the two. In terms of how, technology is being developed here. It's very interesting. So certainly the black box um, is, is really centrally important. I think it's primarily important for one reason. So when you look at um, historically, who are the great managerial thinkers, right? You've got Taylor, um, who kind of developed scientific management, the idea of intensifying work in the workplace by understanding work better than workers themselves. Um, and his, his thing was basically we have to study workers as they are working in order to determine where the gaps in the working day are. So that we'll, then we can basically speed things up. Now, that begins from a position which assumes that workers understand basically more about production than their bosses do. So if I am working on an assembly line, I probably understand better how the assembly line operates. So I can understand where the opportunities are for me. I can double up on a job with the person next to me and then go read a book or whatever, right? Um, But fundamentally, what we're dealing with here is somewhat of an inversion, where actually workers on the street, receiving the instructions of this black box, have a real kind of a knowledge disadvantage. And that knowledge hierarchy, which is always assumed by Taylorism, is somewhat inverted, which means that actually knowledge of how these black boxes operate is concentrated in a different workforce. And this is something I didn't get whilst I was working there. Right, I really missed, and in retrospect it's quite stupid, but I, I really missed the idea that anyone in head office, that there was a class fracture there. That there was actually a distinction between tech workers who were doing the, the technical, you know, the developmental work to create this app, and the bosses who actually run it. But in retrospect it's quite obvious to think that actually there's another fraction of the working class. There's actually just been an increase in the division of labour that means that another fraction of the working class is designing your own work process. So office workers, tech workers in head office are designing the work of workers on the street. Um, And that for me is an interesting industrial connection. that I'm fascinated in how we can overcome that distinction um, and how the black box operates as an intentional divider. Now, there's another um, major managerial thinker, Elton Mayo, proto-fascist, horrible person in, in many varieties of ways. But He basically invents human relations. I I think it's important for us to remember that human relations is basically invented by a (laughs) proto-fascist. But he talks about the way, or he used to talk about the way, in which... Um, fundamentally, workers form bonds at work. Like human communities, people form social bonds all the time. Now for Mayo, the really important thing is that workers don't form destabilizing bonds with each other. No, no, no. They have to form bonds with the company. Like the, the unit that you bond to has to be the entire company. That's the whole point of HR, is it's going to make you commit to so the company as a family. Right? There is a unity of interest here. There's no class division between me, the boss, and you, the worker. In fact, we're all in this together, right? An interesting phrase to remember, um, given our political context for the last few years. Now, what that relies upon is the idea that you can make a worker commit to the workplace by feeling like they have a stake in it. What a black box actually does, and kind of it's important to remember, this is completely autocratic control. So, in other jobs, you know, if you've ever had a supervisor telling you what to do, it's obviously deeply unpleasant. But if you protest or, you know, use small resistance mechanisms to, you know, slow down the work, they will alter the way in which they manage you. That fundamentally can't happen with a black box where they only have one way of making you work and they can't adapt it in response. There's no compromise built into the system. Now, alongside that, you don't understand the process that's going on, and this leads to a real commitment hole, right? There's just no commitment from workers to these companies or to these apps, right? There's no sense of being in this together. Now, when you combine those, you get a workforce which is deeply alienated from their, their labor process, deeply vulnerable because they 're highly precarious they 're paid on a, a rate per drop they 're not guaranteed any wages and they will often spend extended periods of time when it 's you know, not very busy not earning anything at all and then you give them huge control over the point of production because fundamentally they don 't have any supervisory infrastructure in a city you know a lot these head offices they might have one person mm. in a city, but most of the time it 's run from i mean there 's a company Fedora in Europe they literally run all their, office, all their operations everywhere from a central office in Berlin. Like if you're working in Gothenburg, your your actual contact, if you ring up the company and say, oh, there's something wrong, will be in Berlin, right? So they have no on-the-ground infrastructure and they give over complete control to you as a worker because you're doing very time-sensitive work and you're doing logistical work, which means you, know, you really can't be replaced. Mm. So this puts huge power in terms of the capacity to stop work to refuse work to all you know call a strike in the hands of the worker at the same time as you've got no commitment at the same time as you don't really understand what's going on and, and this is an explosive mixture
0: yeah i mean it's just funny you mentioned the, the hr stuff there because the people who of course are really good at this stuff is the uh, the americans you know, <laughs> you know when they they show these sort of anti-union films to their workers as they come in you know sort of walmart and amazon you mm. know the union seeks to divide you we're part of a huge family. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, they're actually really very distressing. You, uh, they, they occasionally leak. You can see them on YouTube, but it's very much this sort of, you know, this sense of there being a cohesive whole. I guess I'm interested in it, then to, to to develop that sense of you know, what, because obviously we, we started with that, that scene of workers confronting, you know, their boss essentially, mm. uh, you know, and the boss being utterly baffled. Uh, and, and sort of finding his strategy is not working. Do you have any sense of of how the bosses of the company think about their
1: workforce? Oh God, well, I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, I think fundamentally they try and invisibilize in so far as possible. So, I mean, if you look at any of their performances, I mean, people might know there's these horrible like tech business expos everywhere where, you know, if you want to be a startup, you can go and pay 500 pounds or sit in an audience and listen to some I can't use the words because Ofton would tell me off, but you can you can listen to someone tell you, you know, how some big, apparently successful unicorn company does it. Mm. Um, and when they talk about this, they just sit there and they talk about Frank. That's what they call their yes. algorithm. They talk about, you know, their innovative, disruptive business model. I, I think insofar as possible, they basically try and ignore it. Will Hsu has a thing. It's kind of a reverse workers inquiry where he claims that he this was- This is the guy who founded the, the yeah. delivery. So right? he's joint founder um, now. Uh, Will Orlovsky has left. He's like, sole founder. Um, and he basically talks about Sometimes I'll go out and do deliveries because I want to understand how the work is done. It's kind of a reverse workers inquiry from the top down. But I think fundamentally, they don't really consider the conditions they're putting people in Um, or if they do in some kind of profoundly alienated way. Because when you actually look at the reality, I mean, this is not a sob story. It's the thing to say. This is not about how I was horribly exploited because I wasn't really. um, I mean, I was exploited in the way that every other worker was, but in no more exceptional way. Um, and I had a safety net that many others didn't. But when you look at the conditions that workers are actually working under, it is really hard. Uh, you know, I, I knew workers in Brighton who came off mopeds at speed, because when you're working for a piece rate, you have to work faster and faster and faster in order to make the most you can to actually get by. I mean, if you're making two deliveries an hour, that's eight pounds, mm. you have to pay costs. If you're on a moped, those costs are going to be quite high. You're really going to struggle to make it by. So when it's busy, you want to make every delivery you possibly can. You want to be making 12, 16 pounds an hour. If you're on a moped, you can just push the throttle and go fast faster and faster and faster. And you're incentivized to take risks with no protection. So I knew someone who came off, broke his um, his kneecap into into bits and couldn't work for five months with, with very little um, protection for him. There was no sick pay. And then when you look at actually what results in terms of the damage done to workers physically, it's not just that people have accidents. I mean, I tell the story in the book a couple of times of how I got into like fights and, uh, and that's not really me. Uh, for people who don't know me, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not prone to road rage, but I would get into these confrontations because you're attempting to push, to go faster and faster across the city. But then there's also, there's deaths. Mm. It, it's notable, um, I worked with the Transnational Courier Federation, which is this is kind of jumping ahead a bit, but a, a group of workers who basically organised transnationally to talk about conditions in platform capitalism and co organized because they worked in, you know, they might work for Rappi in Argentina, which is very much the same model as Deliveroo, or they might be a delivery worker in, in Italy and also in, and then they want to talk to someone who works for Deliveroo in the UK and kind of organise transnationally because these platforms are so expansive. but. One of the first things they did was actually they made a video talking about the way in which so many workers they knew had died. And it's fascinating to, to kind of think about this as, as completely hidden. Like not, these strikes are somewhat invisible, um, so I think we'll talk about this later, but that there has been a huge labour movement in platform capitalism, which no one is really cognizant of. No one really thinks about, no one talks about it. I mean, Maybe it's too much to hope for, that journalists might be slightly concerned about the, the way in which workers in these, in these sectors are acting, but there are huge numbers of report, unreported strikes going on all the time. But also there's, there's deaths. Um, there's, I, I tell the story of some, some workers who who died in the book, um, but they fundamentally, I mean, Marx writes. Uh, there's a great quote from um, Capital where he talks about how in the industrial battle, the factory nails a list to the front of the door of you know everyone who's died, the casualties in the industrial battle. Today, that that list isn't even kept, right? So, I don't know if these bosses think about the workers who are dying uh, for very low wages in the streets with no protection, with no compensation for their families. But if they are, uh, I mean, God help them, their, their souls are very black. <laughs>
0: um, perhaps it's worth talking about because you you mentioned, you know, the way in which this sort of labour movement has developed across sort of these versions of platform capitalism, sort of gig economy workers, um, and obviously part of that, and, and it plays a role in the book is this development of, of the very tool that allows this, uh, you know, the, the, this, this form of labour to exist, smartphone uh, communications technologies. These obviously change the landscape for workers' struggle as well. I mean, you know, something like the the Rebel Rue, your sort of newsletter, um, is a relatively conventional um, strike tool. It has its kind of very obvious historical antecedents. Um, but there are other things too, and simply the rise of the internet, the smartphone, is obviously enable the existence of this platform in the first place. But how have they been turned to workers' advantage? Um, you know, and I, I you know, I, I, perhaps also it's worth talking about actually the international dimensions of this stuff as well. Mm-hmm.
1: So. I think the best way into this is to think about, you know, what lessons did I learn whilst I was doing this work, whilst this inquiry was kind of going on. Um, I think for me, the major one I learned was really that no workplace is a blank slate, right? that every process of bosses need you to cooperate in order to be able to be productive. Right. And that sets up a kind of skeletal structure, that cooperation where worker is having to interact with worker, where workers are having to meet in the same place, that skeleton is a kind of invisible organisation through which workers are already in contact. Now, that's done in kind of technologically mediated ways but it's also quite concrete so we talked mm-hmm. about the zone centres earlier. So the zone centres for us were fascinating because it would be, it was one of the strangest political experiences I've ever had like a group of 30 workers sitting in a square where clearly passers by are completely puzzled about what all these people were in kind of turquoise delivery blue are doing you're standing there and people are just chatting they're making jokes and then suddenly an argument will break out because you're all angry about the wages or suddenly someone will start talking or someone will start d- distributing something like the rebel rue you know an inflammatory bullet with a game of uh, <laughs> of attempting to provoke um, some kind of political response from people and, and begin the conversation around self-organisation. So this embryonic structure um, in real life exists in every workplace and for me I, I developed an appreciation that that structure I kind of had this naive idea in my head when I went into the job that my job would be to you know, if I wanted to organise here, I'd have to bring together people who didn't otherwise know each other. What I found was a, an already very well organised workforce. And a guy called Stan Weir, who's a much underread um, American uh, labour writer who, who worked in all sorts of jobs in automotive manufacture, uh, on the docks uh, as a merchant seaman, writes about informal work groups I think excellently. And these informal work groups do structure everything. But what's happening here is that there's also an overlaid form of virtual communication on top of those real-life zone centre meetings. So those are, you know, WhatsApp groups which play all sorts of functions. So they fundamentally are, you know, chances to talk about uh, have you got paid yet? So you're not on PAYE, obviously, you're self-employed. So you're getting, you know, sometimes invoices come in late and people are just confirming, is this just me or is this has everyone been paid late? It comes to things like, you know, is it busy out at the moment? Should I come out and work tonight? It comes to things like, do you want to organise a five-a-side football game? In certain circumstances, is I was in a, a WhatsApp group in Brighton where it was used to provide emergency medical care to people because uh, people were, you know, not okay. They were um, actually one, one rider had hypothermia, and we had to scramble people to go and put them in a taxi on the way to hospital. So these groups already have a very developed form of solidarity that, that interfaces with the, the in real life uh, forms of solidarity built in zone centres and waiting in kitchens. And out of the two of these, that embryonic solidarity can then be mobilised into forms of highly effective strike action, which I think is what we've seen again and again, because actually the workplace as it is currently organised is very prone to this stuff. And the fascinating thing for me was when we were involved, So the Rebel Rue, I'll explain, it was a bulletin, two sides of A4. The goal really was to try and talk to workers about what our conditions of labour were, both comparatively within one country, but then also internationally and attempting to use different languages and things to get to different parts of the workforce. Um, And basically, we wanted to understand, you know, what's actually going on here, but there was a fascinating development in 2017 where there was a strike um, in Brighton in February, which I was involved in. But then after that, you know, they, they kept on spreading. It would be Turin or Bologna or Paris or all over the continent. And we increasingly became aware of the fact that if you just had a, an alert for, you know, Deliveroo strike on mm. your Google, you would keep on getting pinged from things happening all over the place. And actually, this is not a UK phenomenon. This is a profoundly transnational phenomenon, not even a European phenomenon, right? So the Transnational Courier Federation I mentioned earlier now has contacts with riders in South America, right? And they're they're organising across these borders because they see very similar conditions. And actually, if you you go and look at the the Chinese example, I talked uh, very briefly in the book about Moitan, which is a a platform that actually in 2017, 11% of the strike action in China's service sector was by food platform workers, the exact same kind of workers, delivery workers in the UK. So because this is a rapidly spreading, I mean, this is a growth-focused form of capital. I mean, maybe we can talk about venture capital investment a little later, but... Deliver actually grew 100,000% near enough in the period between 2013 and 2017. It was the fastest growing company mm. in Europe in that period. Now that growth is, is not constrained by borders. So why would the workers movement be constrained by borders? Because you're, reconstru- you're, you're all being recomposed by the same uh, kind of capital across different contexts, but in the same way. And you can learn from one another's struggles. So examples of this uh, in Paris. Um, workers tended to have strikes where they would go from restaurant to restaurant and demand that the restaurant turned off their tablet. This was how they kind of enforced um, a picket line. Well, as soon as workers in the UK realised that's what they were doing, that's a brilliant idea. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're going to start doing that now. Uh, The blocking of dark kitchens, so dark kitchens being kitchens which are run on a delivery-only operation, um, these started to pop up in more and more cities across the UK and then in Europe and workers in the UK worked out, well, if you want to stop a huge proportion of deliveries, you just go and blockade those. You pick it those out and suddenly they've lost a huge amount of their production capacity and, you know, the, the, the system is not going to work that evening. As soon as they'd worked that out, workers in Paris again copied that mm-hmm. back. So really there is a, a constant ferment in transnational development in this stuff, which is because the organisation organization of labour, there are kind of concrete material links that mean the circulation of struggle has to be transnational.
0: I mean, it, it, it's striking actually all of this account is, you know, it, it, um, it, it reminds me of some of the arguments that went on or some of the... So, so one of the things it reminds me of is, is actually kind of the classic sort of account of proletarian struggle in the 19th century. It's actually much, much closer to that than it is to the, the sorts of unionism that developed over the course of the 20th century when you had sort of relatively stable uh, victories to build on, right? So you have, you know, struggles around... Uh, various forms of employment law, the kind of protections that you would expect at work, etc, etc. You're looking here much more like the kind of classic Marxist account of proletarian who is used for his or her labour and then sort of thrown off into the streets, Marx's famous phrase, thrown off into the streets uh, as soon as uh, uh, they're no longer required. Uh, you know, so it's, it's very much, uh, you, know, you know, a reminder. Uh, of the, the, the fact that that's where trade union struggle began. Uh, it, it also reminds me of a sort of more recent debate, a sort of debate that developed around 2011, um, around the concept of precarity. This is kind of most uh, famously advanced by Guy Standing uh, in the precariat, where he argues that this is, this is a new class Right, and this is very, very, very fashionable about eight or nine years ago, uh, and and it's it seems less so now. But it, it, is precarity a useful way to think about the the experience of this particular part of the working class?
1: So I think the reason that that ideas like the precariat had some some purchase at the time is because it it kind of hinges on a a semi-correct recognition that this is very much not struggle in post-war regulated social democratic capitalism, right? This is is not what it looks like um, and there is something different going on. Now that's certainly correct. Um, I think for me one of the fascinating things about this is actually that, like you say, we do have to refer back to understand what's going on here because precarity is precisely not a new invention. It's actually a return to the historical norm, right? Instead, you know, when I was researching stuff around Deliveroo and around precarious workers' struggles, I kept on finding my way back to the, the London dock strikes of 1889, right? This was a, a reference point that I couldn't really escape because when you're just talking about how do a group of workers paid a piece rate for particular forms of work, um, hired, you know, on very short notice, paid nothing otherwise, how can they kind of launch a labour movement? And, and that dock strike alongside the Match Girl strike, alongside the Gas Workers strike, Launched the new unionism, which was really a connection. it was industrial trade unionism, it was political trade unionism, and you know it was actually that strike that created the TGWU, which is now unite right modern British trade unionism, as we know it, emerged out of a period where precarious work was the norm, and precarious workers led the movement because they were precarious they had to be militant right there was not you know we can we can steadily fight our way to a slightly better corporatist settlement instead there had to be this kind of clash of forces I think that Really, we're returning to a historical norm here where In this sector in particular, the profitability is not high, right? Delivery made 1% profit in 2017. They claim they're profitable in mature markets. So in cities like London, they probably are, but then they're also spending huge amounts um, on just constant expansion efforts. So there's not really a middle ground here where you can see a huge amount of potential for profit sharing uh, and regulated relations. Instead, you kind of have to fight a guerrilla war if you're a worker. You need to force up your boosts for the next couple of weeks because that's really your only opportunity. And maybe in the long term, you're not going to have a collective bargaining relationship. So I think here we are returning to a historical norm. And we have to think about this as, you know, the labour movement never started from stable employment, right? We never generated the movement that we relied on to win us things like the NHS out of stable employment. We started from precarity. So there's no, you know, if you want to rebuild a radical labour movement in, in the contemporary moment, which absolutely we need to do, I mean, I guess another kind of background context of the book is the idea that, the contemporary labour movement is so weak. Well, how do you start to remedy that? How do you start to reorganise a labour movement? Well, precarious workers have done it before and kind of the gambit is perhaps precarious workers can do it again.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, so just to, to kind of, uh, you know, articulate that, it, it, you know, the thing that's, that's that is perhaps worth taking away from someone like Guy Standing's work is not, his prescriptions about class struggle um because it sort of doesn't really exist in guy standing's world um it is that's probably not Quite fair, but you know, but whatever. You know, his argument that, that the precariat is a new class in the main, making, and that they are distinct from the old proletariat, which he views weirdly as being you know, entirely involved in these kind of what, what, what you would call social democratic or welfare liberalism mm. jobs, right? These jobs with like relatively solid protections and you know, relatively kind of culturally conservatives, and then describes this kind of rather ramified class structure, this sort of sevenfold class structure with you know yeah. elites, tiny elites, and salariat, proficients and <laughs> uh, you know and precariat underneath it. It's in some ways quite interesting right because it's a description actually of, of actually the way in which you know work has become segmented and you know the way in which perhaps people in, in those roles think about you know who, who their equivalents are and actually who, where they are on, on, on the social ladder um but you know it, it, you know it's it, it, it you know it's one of the things about this that's so striking is that you know you look at Kind of UK polling, UK surveys. So, you know, two thirds of people who are you know twenty five to thirty five, you know, think of themselves as working class. Mm. You know, so, the idea that, that that this this stuff has gone away is is, is, is sort of questionable to me. Um, but but you know that there is something in Standing's work when he's thinking about the the precariat, so called, um, and that is useful or, or that makes us kind of you know think about strategy in some way. Really, is like, so history doesn't repeat itself, right? But it does, you know, sometimes rhyme. Um, you know, the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of living, as uh, Uncle Carl... We're going for a record right? for the number of quotations. This <laughs> we one. really are, aren't we? Um, but the point I'm getting at here is that one of the things that Standing says is that is that because this emergent class of precariat, right? You don't have to buy that. But one of the things he says is that in the absence of kind of like work-based identity, so some of the stuff that you've been talking about in, in, in its most capitalist form, but there's also, you know, quite a strong, you know, labourist or mm-hmm. or trade unionist tradition of thinking about kind of workers' identity and valorization of work. Lacking any of that identity, um, with no kind of solidaristic labour community, um, he identifies within the precariat like uh, he calls them four A's, Anger, anime, uh anxiety and alienation mm. um, is that useful diagnosis
1: it te- is it is it does it chime with your experience i mean are platform workers yeah angry yes, yes. <laughs> yes. are they uh, full of anime? yes i mean I think there 's a There's a point here around the fact that these workers have very little buy-in systemically and they're not being offered. And this is a wider generational point as well. Um, I mean, I write about the the overlap of the platform workers movement with groups like Weatherspoon's workers who've had the privilege of, of kind of doing some research and organizing alongside as well. And those groups of workers do very much. I mean, there's a fantastic, the Paul Mason phrase that graduate without the future and some of this stuff really applies because you, you're seeing a kind of class repolarization where people who would have been marginal parts of the workforce for a long time find themselves in solidarity with other groups who historically might have expected to be more bought into a mm-hmm. system, right? You know, I think we're talking about a process of class repolarization whereby, I mean, what does algorithmic management, what does the creation of black boxes really do? It gets rid of a layer of supervisors, right? Actually, these supervisors who aren't producing any value but are, are organising the production of value are just getting en masse automated by things like apps, right? Mm -hmm. And this this applies to scheduling. So you look at, you know, Walmart, they have automated scheduling systems. Uh, This applies to, you know, in an Amazon warehouse, you have nothing like the number of supervisors you would have needed 20 years ago, because you've got these, you know, wearable technologies, which can kind of determine how people work. So I think what we're seeing here is the elimination of a layer of supervisors and a lot of people who might have had expectations of kind of systematic incorporation through home ownership or all all sorts of other mechanisms are now being pushed into solidarity um, with people who've always had relatively little buy-in, you know, migrants with a regular status or whatever. And so I think for me, what I'm finding fascinating about this ongoing movement and fascinating about this ongoing process is about the way in which new... Solidarities are emerging. I, I talk a little bit about how customers who use Deliveroo, you know, why why would anyone use Deliveroo? Basically, um, I've bought a few pizzas off it, but you know, I'm not a consistent user. But I, what I think is particularly interesting is that it really fills a hole in kind of urban social reproduction, where people often white collar office workers kind of want to consume something that makes them feel like, you know, I'm having the consumer experience I'm meant to be having. I'm a young urban uh, metropolitan, I'm meant to be having nice nice dinners, right? But the reality of their life is they feel broken, they're working too many hours, they're often suffering mental health crises, they often have care needs, which they're really struggling to fill. And they are basically then attempting to use platforms like Deliveroo to get a kind of solution where it feels like you're having a high social capital consumption experience, but actually what you're desperately looking for is someone to cook you a meal and look after you. Right, and so for me, those customers are also possible. Mm. You know, their their trajectory is very much towards solidarity with the workers who are actually giving them the food.
0: Right. Right. I mean, this this is, I think, you know, one of the things I, I came away from the book thinking about is that actually, you know, this this you know this question of informality or precarious labour is not something, um, you know, sure that you know informality differs in its kind of you know, brutality and viciousness across sectors, but um, but actually, it's it's a phenomenon that's that's far more widespread. Um, I was thinking, in fact, and you mentioned your, your chapter there, where you you think about the the customer and the customer worker relation. This is something that, that that I've been thinking about a bit, and you know, something that's increasingly in the kind of discussions on the left around you know workplace organising or how you might you know do public ownership differently or stuff like that. Um, you know, there are. Cases like this, if you read someone like Philippe Pasganazi To uh, his book about you know, renterism and, and you know there's the, you have like alliances between nurses and patients against healthcare corporations for instance so there are there are examples uh, and in fact he talks about fast food strikes in in that book as well um, it, 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 but that you know yeah I guess you know i'm I'm sort of reticent about customers mm. right. I'm reticent about service users, even in yeah. sort of, you know, relatively uncontroversial nationalizations. Um, you know, it, it, there is the question on the one hand of like the the low level of class consciousness in Britain, which is is one thing. But then, you, you know, if you're thinking about how you incorporate customer support or solidarity mm-hmm. into a worker struggle, I, can, I guess I can see that, right? I mean, that's part of what a picket does. That's part of what, you know, moves to boycott do. But the sense that I got from your chapter is actually the how porous the boundary is yeah. between worker and customer, actually, and one might be the other at various points uh, so, so so I wonder if you have a sense of you know how You know, poorest those class boundaries are now in practice. I wonder if you have a sense of, you know, what it means effectively to, to, to have, you know, to be organizing in a sector that has like very much a less defined, because, you know, you mentioned at the start there that the, you know, the, the the bike riders, for instance, are are often, are often kind of overqualified or often have like these kind of, you know, perhaps rather unexpected class backgrounds. Um, but, But what does it mean effectively to be organizing people who might consider themselves middle class?
1: I think it's really interesting because when you think about worker organisation, what do we need to do to relaunch the workers movement in the UK? Well, fundamentally, if you look 1979 to the present, where has our density as a trade union movement collapsed? It's been in new workplaces, what we call greenfield workplaces. The brownfield workplaces, workplaces that have remained organised, have remained relatively high density, but it's actually the new sets of the economy where we've lost things, right? And the shift from uh, you know a physical process of commodity production where you 're producing commodities and they go off an assembly line you just don 't see them again to a process of, of providing services as commodities does implicate other working class people and other middle class people i mean in so far as that term has a meaning very much into your everyday work process right and and there is i think a, an interesting process of conceptualization like is customer an an, is every customer an antagonist right because often anyone who 's worked a service job knows that certainly some customers are antagonists yeah. um, but We have to think about the way in which if you're working basically in the commodified social reproduction of someone else, you are not necessarily in an antagonistic relationship. If you're a McDonald's worker, lots of the people there, it will be mums coming in, you Mm -hmm. know, getting Mm -hmm. food for their children or whatever. Like, you're not serving your happy meal to a a class enemy, right? The class enemy is just profiting off you reproducing um, the other member of the same class. So I think those boundaries have to be thought through. And for me, the political solution to this is not necessarily like some tactical innovation where it's like, you know, the customer just, you know, a boycott or whatever. Um, And I do, I I very much remain part of... uh, party to the idea that, you know, we have to conceptualise people primarily as workers and the conceptualization Mm -hmm. of people as consumers is is generally unhelpful for left politics uh, because it makes it it distracts you from the field of your own exploitation into like, what do I do with the the minor fruits of my exploitation? Um, But I think that we have to kind of start thinking about political solutions to these problems that do communalise these experiences. So I end the book with um, kind of an attempt to picture what a people's Deliveroo might look like. Like what would it look like if we expropriate the platforms? If we just said to Will Shue and Dan Warn these kind of horrible people um, for Ofcom's uh, who, <laughs> who have profited so much off the exploitation the pain the, the suffering of their workforces if we thought if we just took their assets from them what could we do with them mm-hmm. like what actually is the core of this platform the core of this platform is it's a care service right and we have such a desperate need for care in our society I, I don't think post austerity Britain there's no society <laughs> that I can think of where you have a greater need for the recomposition of urban solidarities and you know we've got an aging population who will desperately need food to their door and we have people who struggle to leave the house mental health Mm -hmm. problems and all of these people could benefit from this stuff. So for me, I want, I think ultimately the goal is not to, you know, actually create a, um, a new tactical framework that implicates customers in a different way, but instead to start having political solutions, which fundamentally undermine the idea that you are a consumer of a commodity, and instead decommodify these social relations entirely. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, so, so the stuff on on, on that, that question of, kind of, of class identity, or thinking, thinking about this stuff, uh, you know, I, as you, you mentioned, you know, in, insofar as the middle class exists, I mean, I think this is, is, is often a, a, an important thing to say, is that um, you know, the, the left often treats... Uh, the middle class in, in two ways. It's either that it's basically illusory, right? Um, it's full, false consciousness or whatever. Um, or, is it, or, or it's a stratum of workers who are difficult to trust or have contradictory leanings or have, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, and I think, I think that's pretty fair, actually, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, um, I was going to say, I don't disagree. Uh, but, <laughs> well, because, uh, yeah, yeah, no, because, you know, of course, it, you know, it, it, the term, as far as I see it used, it can mean, you know, frankly... Can mean as little as people who are, who have work that is not as abject mm. as some other people's, and have access to what were kind of once or for some period kind of standard protections at the workplace. But it can also mean something as much as like someone you know who by objectively standards is by objective standards is incredibly wealthy, mm. privately schooled or whatever, um, but isn't old aristocracy So it's not necessarily useful there. Well, I think what you're doing here is focusing on work itself, and that's that. It's, that too i think is useful and partly because you know one of the things i was thinking while reading is like it is true isn't it that 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 you know it, certainly on the left our you know our use of the the, term, the, the word labor has become kind of so uh, ramified and so broad actually in some senses uh, that actually <laughs> focusing it back as something that that relates primarily to work uh, it is 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 crucial but on the other hand the thing that's, that's going on here that move that expansion of the concept of labour to, to encompass almost every facet of human existence mm. tells us something useful right that, that people feel that labour that their work that the psychology of the wage permeates every aspect yeah. of their lives and in a sense you have this new technology which actually also has perhaps for the first time the capacity to also span uh, you know a huge uh, a, you know a huge huge section of, of, of or, or process uh, a huge section of people's kind of desires and wants and, and stuff like that so 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 in that sense and thinking about you know say an algorithm or a piece of technology that can you know spread you know or that or that can sense in in some way i i worry about ascribing you that can spread in, in, in this way across the entirety of society it's, it's worth asking because yes absolutely at the point of production absolutely at the point of labour absolutely at the point of work but but the question also is where political struggle is for most people and that, that seems also to me to be about housing to be mm. about you know uh, and one of the things that this kind of technology has been helpful in it's different to the kind of algorithm that that dictates where you're going to go and where you're going to run and stuff like that but this kind of you know rise technology is also giving rise to really effective action movements around housing groups like acorn uh you know london renters union stuff like that so so th- so there does seem to me to be something quite hopeful uh, in in the stuff that you're describing
1: yeah here. and I, i'm Always at the moment, uh, Notes from Blow just released an issue on housing, which is excellent, everyone should read. Uh, but I'm always going back to this Jeffrey Eli quote, right, where he talks about the way in which. Um, the workers' movement never just emerged from the workplace. It always also emerged from the community. And historically, we've neglected that. And it's important to think back. I mean, there's a whole series of um, strikes in in Barcelona historically where women organised, they were doing kind of like small textile production in their homes in a very decentralised way, in a way that one might classically think there's no opportunity for organising here. But because they met in the markets and they went and they bought food in the same place at the same time and they all met there, they could organise there, right? And I think really we have to start to be much more investigative in the way that we think about, you know, this work is located in an urban environment. Urban environments are organised in certain ways. There is material relations outside of the immediate process of production, which are vitally important for how workers organise um, and how we can build a movement that, that doesn't just deal with the fact that, you know, you are being exploited at work because doubtless you are, but also the fact, you know, a lot of these workers, Brighton's housing stock is awful, like right? really bad because a lot of it was built very quickly um, and, you know, a long time ago. And, they're kind of going home to, to mouldy flats, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if you have an organisation which can say, you know, not only do we care about you, you in the workplace, but also we know people who can help you with, you know, your mouldy flats.
0: Yeah, I'm, I, I, mean, I was just thinking as, as we've got five minutes left and this leads on naturally to the question of institutionalisation because the kind of tradition that you're coming from in the book or that you... Your, your theoretical background is or, or that you approach the work with has been you know, typically suspicious of in mm. political institutions especially but also kind of union institutions as well some points in the development of, of that tradition the Paris tradition for instance always it's thought that maybe at times of kind of intense industrial struggle you could leap over the political process you know, that's probably not true Um, I think probably in, in, you know, liberal democracy, and bourgeois democracy, that that actually the political process is pretty pretty extensive and it's actually pretty hard Mm. to root around. What's your sense then of, because obviously you've had the turn in the Labour Party, um, and actually I think to some extent a turn in the trade unions as well in the way in which they think about, and I'm talking the major trade unions, and the TUC-affiliated trade unions. Um, What's your sense of how these struggles can knit in to both the, both the kind of revitalised Labour Party, but also the the kind of old trade unions as well?
1: So the, I make a very unusual move for me uh, towards the end of the book of talking about Karl Kautsky, uh, one of the, the major European Social Democrats. Um, the renegade the, the Kautsky. Renegade Kautsky. <laughs> but there's a, a fascinating thing, the Erfurt programme, the SPD's um, kind of major statement of principle, Kautsky writes it up, um, and he talks... Basically, about the way in which uh, it's what Lars T. Lee, through reading Lenin, calls the merger formula. Um, it's also about the way that a workers' movement and a political movement are, uh, for the goals of socialism cannot be divided, right? I think for me, there's a very interesting kind of retroactive rereading of operaismo, of, of kind of workerism and that classical theoretical tradition, in which it was addressing a gap between the workers' movement and the politics of the party, right? And that gap at the time was that the workers' movement had actually, you know, surged out ahead of the politics of the party. The PCI, which is the, the party of the time, was kind of disconnected from those struggles. And, you know, the workerists took that in lots of different directions. They, they had very kind of heterogeneous understandings of what that meant. But at the moment, I think we almost have to think about that gap in the same way, but but reversed, mm. right? The politics of the party appear to be out ahead of the workers' movement. Twenty seventeen. Thirty thousand days lost to strike action—that is the lowest day lost to strike action count since 1893. Right? Our, our movement actually in the workplace is very, very weak, and in the communities it's building, but it's still—you know—these organisations you mentioned earlier, you know, London Renters' Union, Acorn—they're they're in the low thousands, mm-hmm. right? It's not—we don't really have a class struggle movement in any of the everyday experiences of exploitation, comparable to kind of historical examples. Social movements aren't really there either. Extinction Rebellion is obviously wonderful, but it's a very small example historically. So. When you look at this stuff, I think we're now in a kind of an We've inverted the inversion that the that the understood, where, where the po- the politics of the party is ahead, and that really poses a challenge to us, both for thinking about how if that party were notionally to gain government, it could possibly implement any of its programme, mm-hmm. but also for what do you do when you're behind? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of this theoretical tradition has started from the position that yeah we're way out ahead, workers are really militant, actually they always want to smash things up, and in certain circumstances certainly you can find that. Um, I think one of the interesting things here is that when trade union law has been scrapped, certainly workers do appear to want to fight. Um, Sorry, we're getting to the last yeah, minute. We are You're getting to
0: the last down. minute. There, so well, I, I, I will I will cut you off there, but I think it's a good note to end on. And that question, I think, is so vital about how uh, you know a, a political organisation can start to seed the kind of deeper roots of this stuff and start to help develop them. Anyway, Riding for Deliveroo is out now from Polity Books. Uh, can thank you for joining me this week. Uh, we will be back at the same time, in the same place next week. This has been Vira FM on Resonance One Hundred Four Point Four FM.
1: Bye bye.